This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. He's interviewed five U.S. presidents, authored seven books, and has an independent voice that resonates. What happened to when we were united against a common enemy? He's raw, unique, and one of America's most important talk show hosts. Watch Smirconish, Saturday on CNN. Does someone who threatens Putin's power ever die unintentionally in Russia? I don't think so. He just leaves all this carnage in his wake. Do you think he cares about that? No, he doesn't. Who is responsible for that image? I take responsibilities for anything that happens in this city. How dependent is the government on Elon Musk? The answer to your question is, we are very, very beholden to Elon Musk. The Source with Caitlin Collins, tonight on CNN. Christiana Manpour, CNN, with elements of the Galilee Division in Israel. As dusk fell, people were still marching. We're very interested to see what's going on here. I'm Wolf Blitzer. This is CNN. A warm welcome to First Move. Great to be with you for the next hour. And coming up, a desperate search for survivors. Rescuers in Morocco continue to battle both the terrain and the elements, searching the rubble after Friday's powerful earthquake. The latest number of lost lives, 2,497. We'll take you there for the very latest. Plus, Kim's trip to Russia. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un believed to be headed for the eastern city of Vladivostok aboard his armoured train. What might come of that trip coming up too? And a diplomatic dance in Asia. President Biden returns from his whirlwind tour of India and Vietnam as he looks to bolster diplomatic ties and counter China's influence in the region. The details up next. It's also the first trading day of the week. U.S. stock futures are pushing higher, as you can see there, as investors await the latest U.S. inflation report. Wall Street is certainly hoping, I think, Wednesday's consumer price index will continue its path of easing and not further complicate the outlook for the Federal Reserve in November. No rate change, of course, expected in September. But potential moves, too, over at the Bank of Japan after its chief hinted a policy shift away from negative interest rates. The Japanese yen jumping against the U.S. dollar by the most in two months on that news. The dollar index, though, has had its best run, in fact, since the winter of 2014. It registered an eighth straight week of gains against major currencies, up 5% even just since mid-July, boosted, of course, by a slew of stronger U.S. data, which, of course, in hand complicating the picture for the Fed. But that's the performance. All right, lots to get to, as always, but first to the desperate search for survivors entering a third day in Morocco. It follows Friday's 6.8 magnitude earthquake. The quake was the strongest to hit the central part of the country in more than a century, with the epicenter not far from the busy city of Marrakesh. But the situation is especially dire in remote mountain villages where families have been left without food, water and medicine, and with roads blocked by landslides. 
Sam Kiley joins us now from a newly established camp at the base of the Atlas Mountains. Sam, they've certainly pulled this together incredibly quickly. What can you tell us about what those facilities are now offering? I know the bigger issues, of course, are higher up. Well, you're absolutely right, as always, Julia. This is uh, a field hospital that was opened at 8 a.m. this morning. It's now just past 2, uh, 2 in the afternoon uh, local time. Uh, and they've got uh, pretty much everything you would expect to see in a non-field hospital. They've even got surgical uh, operating theatres. They've got laboratories. They've got a paediatric unit, pharmacies, psychological counselling. People are moving in and coming down and being treated here and then others being sent on to the mainstream hospitals elsewhere uh, in the country, particularly nearby uh, Marrakesh. But as you rightly point out, it's in those mountains, in the foothills of the, of the Atlas Mountains, where the need is most dire. And this is what it looks like. Another victim buried. Returned to the earth that killed when it shook. More than 2,000 people have perished in the worst Moroccan earthquake in over a hundred years. Most of the deaths were in villages in the Atlas Mountains, where homes cracked and crumbled late on Friday night. The pancaking of these buildings down a side street here in Malai Ibrahim killed 25 people, three or four are still missing, believe buried in the rubble. And this is a pattern that has been repeated throughout this province. And it looks very often like there's been some kind of airstrike, the collapsing buildings here actually leaving holes as if they've been hit by Russian bombs in Ukraine. But this has been an all too natural disaster. At least three elderly people have been entombed here in the remains of their hotel and a fourth guest is missing. After the quake, Sammy called his parents for a day and a half. It rang out until the battery died too. I'm here just because I have lost two of my best things that I have in this life. My parents, my father and my mother, I have lost them here. His grief turns to anger at the government, as it does for so many here. They have no planification, only they have words. It's a balloon of words, only that they have words. That's all. Aid is arriving, but slowly. In Asni, nearby, authorities tell me that 27 people were killed in the quake and 1,200 lost their homes. So Fatima and her husband have said that when they were in the house, she was in the bath when this series of explosions broke out. They said there was no shaking of the ground. She's saying that it felt like the blast from a Kalashnikov automatic rifle, that this was like a sense that the place had been hit by a war. They had no idea that they were suffering from an earthquake. Luckily for them, they evacuated their family very rapidly. Uh, nobody in their family was killed, but in the village, there was Combien uh, 27 people were killed. The house is now abandoned. But Fatima led a team of local women to find food and shelter for the homeless before any aid arrived. All the food here, the result of private donations. Many villages here remain isolated, roads cut by landslides. 
Relief operations will focus on getting to them. Firefighters consider searching for bodies beneath the hotel. Their conclusion is disappointing. Amidst shocks and shattered masonry, it's just too dangerous to rescue the dead. So for now, Sammy's parents will stay buried where they are. And Sam Kali reporting there. Now, another natural disaster. This time in northern Libya, widespread damage and casualties reported after a heavy storm deposited two-thirds of the typical rainfall for a whole year in just one day. Streets were flooded and medics had to evacuate their hospitals. The same storm, given the name Daniel, already brought catastrophic flooding to Greece, if you remember, last week too. It's now forecast to head slowly east towards Egypt. Now, it's not about containing China. It's about having a stable base in the Indo-Pacific, quote. That's the message from U.S. President Joe Biden after his trip to the G20 in India and then Vietnam. As we speak, President Biden heading home after attending that G20 summit in New Delhi, followed by a stop in Vietnam where he met the prime minister and unveiled a strategic partnership agreement. Anna Curran joins us now from Hanoi. President Biden on a number of occasions pushing back on that concept that this was and that the nation has any hostile intent towards China. But it's a shared worry between Vietnam and the United States and therefore naturally brings them closer together, whether it's politically, diplomatically or via trade. Yeah, that's a very good point, Julia. You know, obviously for for Vietnam, China is its largest trading partner. It's its northern neighbor. They share an 800 mile land border, but it's a problematic relationship, uh, particularly in the South China Sea. So America's presence in the Indo-Pacific perhaps, you know, brings some some reassurance uh, that there is that counterbalance, if you like. But this has been an incredibly productive trip for President Biden. Not only has it elevated uh, America's partnership with Vietnam, but there are multi-billion dollar deals that have been signed here in Hanoi over the past day. Uh, The biggest being Boeing, $7.8 billion uh, has of planes, 737 MAX planes, 50 of them have been sold to Vietnam Airlines. That's supporting something like 33,000 jobs back in the United States. Let me read to you some of the other companies that have made huge deals here in Hanoi today. Uh, Boeing, as I mentioned, Amcor, Synopsys, Marvel, Microsoft, NVIDIA, uh, Metal, Meta. These are, uh, you know, semiconductor, AI, cloud computing companies. And, and to think that this is what Vietnam is doing these days, uh, Julia. You know, 20 years ago, they were manufacturing T-shirts and running shoes. And, and now they are very, you know, entrenched in the semiconductor industry. So this is about trade and investment. It's also about America diversifying the global supply chain away from China, you know, that reliance not being there. Uh, it's also about countering China's influence in the Indo-Pacific and its assertiveness in the Indo-Pacific. And we heard from President Biden last night addressing the press, uh, saying that America is here to stay. Take a listen. All the effort we've advanced from day one of my administration to demonstrate to our Indo-Pacific partners and to the world, the United States is a Pacific nation and we're not going anywhere. 
not going anywhere. It was obviously a message aimed at China, at uh, President Xi Jinping, who President Biden has said he hopes to see sometime later uh, this year. Uh, but as he said, this is not about containing China, even though obviously they're doing these big deals in China's backyard, but about having that stable base in the Indo-Pacific. You know, President Biden said this is a critical partnership at a critical time. Uh, he has now wrapped up his visit here. He's, he's aboard Air Force One, flying back to the United States. He's heading straight to, to Anchorage, where he will be taking part in the 9-11 ceremony uh, with troops in Alaska, Julia. Yeah, a busy few days, but it's interesting. That's the line I picked up from that press conference as well. The United States is a Pacific nation and we're not going anywhere. Take note. Anna Corrin, great to have you with us. Thank you for joining us there. Meanwhile, Kim Jong-un en route to Russia. His armoured train appears headed to the far eastern Russian city of Vladivostok, according to South Korean sources. The Kremlin also confirming that the two will meet in the coming days. It comes, of course, after the White House's warning of a potential arms deal between Pyongyang and Moscow. Paula Hancock joins us now. Paula, and you've been reporting on the possibility of this now for many days. And this, of course, is the fear. Yes, Julia, this is a, a meeting, quite frankly, that, that neither Washington nor Seoul want to happen. They don't want to see these two leaders getting together and, and trying to hammer out some kind of an arms deal. But this is what US officials, backed by South Korean officials and, and intelligence on both sides, has been assessing in recent days. The fact that they believe uh, that an arms deal uh, is in the making. Now, back in July, the Russian Defence Minister, uh, Sergei Shuigu, was in Pyongyang. He was given the red carpet treatment by by Kim Jong-un, uh, and he was uh, very much at military events, a military parade. He went to a military uh, expo with Kim Jong-un, and the capabilities of North Korea were very much on display for the Russian defence minister. A significant meeting, as that was the first time a defence minister from Russia had been there since the fall of the Soviet Union. So that was a very clear signal that the relationship was being cemented. Uh, and then according to South Korean intelligence, at the beginning of April, there was a second Russian delegation uh, that went to Pyongyang as well. So this appears to be the outcome of uh, those uh, preliminary meetings. And of course, the question is, what do both sides get out of it? Uh, as far as we can tell, both sides stand to gain a fair bit when it comes to the military uh, technology. Russia, we know, would like more ammunition. It would like more small arms uh, to, uh, to 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 continue its uh, war in Ukraine. And this is something that, according to analysts, North Korea has significant production capabilities of and would be able to supply uh, those ammunitions. And of course, there is a lot of interoperability between the two militaries, so there wouldn't have to be much modification, if any, for that ammunition to then be used by Russian weapons. And of course, when it comes to North Korea, what they would like is core nuclear and missile technology from Russia. They would like more satellite technology. Uh, the past couple of satellites that they've tried to put into space have failed over recent months. So that is technology that they are needing. And also nuclear submarine technology. We heard from US officials, they believe that is something that North Korea would be, would be looking for out of this kind of deal. So from Moscow and Pyongyang's point of view, there is a great deal to be gained from this kind of meeting and any potential arms deal. And of course, politically, uh, they also stand to gain as well as both sides would like to see 
an alternative world order. They would both like to see a world where the US is less powerful, and they would both like to see a world where UN Security Council resolutions, for example, would be less uh, less stringent. Russia, of course, signed on to many of those uh, those sanctions in the past. But while they are friends with North Korea, North Korea is able to continue to keep launching and testing without any worries of UN Security Council resolutions against it. So from the point of view from North Korea and Russia, there is a great deal to be gained. There is a lot of concern in the region, from Seoul, from Tokyo, also in Washington as well, as what, as to what exactly uh, this does mean for, for a start, for the war in Ukraine. What kind of benefit would this give to Russia? But also, in return, what would this do to the region? What would this give in terms of capability to North Korea that it doesn't already have? Julia? Yes, a strategic alliance indeed, and certainly uncomfortable for others. Paula Hancocks, thank you for that. Now, the Spanish Football Federation is planning elections to appoint a successor to Luis Rubiales, who resigned as the organization's president at the weekend. It followed weeks of criticism over the infamous kiss he gave star player Jennifer Hermoso after the Spanish women's victory in the Women's World Cup final. On Friday, the national prosecutor filed a complaint against Rubiales, accusing him of sexual assault and coercion. Amanda Davis joins us now. Amanda, perhaps better late than never, we'll call it an unapologetic resignation, I think, and on Piers Morgan's show, um, no less. What do we make of this and the reaction in Spain, I think, because there does seem to be an effort just to move on as fast as possible? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that uh, for a lot of people, uh, three weeks has just been too long to wait for this moment. And certainly the manner of this resignation from Luis Rubiales uh, has not won him any more fans, Uh, not only the the headline grabbing television interview, but the statement that was issued that makes no mention of that historic World Cup winning side, no mention of Jenny Amoso, no apology, no admission of any wrongdoing. And it begs the question from a lot of people, why now? Was it pressure or was it actually football politics? For so many people, the pressure that has mounted over the last few weeks would have just been too much. But that could very much have been the case, you know, a day or two after the events of of August the 20th, he was suspended by World Football's governing body. There were all the calls from the Spanish Federation for him to resign. He was investigated by the Spanish sporting tribunals. And then, as you rightly mentioned, that Spanish prosecutor opening their criminal case into uh, allegations of sexual assaults and coercion. But interestingly, the only real reason mentioned in Luis Rubiales' uh, statement was a World Cup bid for 2030, which we have talked about before, a joint bid between Spain, Portugal and Morocco, which means so much not only for Spain, but for European football and African football as well. Um, Our colleague Atika Schubert was really saying the view from Spain up to this point has been one of relief because this is something that has so overshadowed that incredible achievement of the Women's World Cup winning side. But it's by no means the end of the story, is it? The, The criminal 
prosecution investigation is ongoing. That will not be brought to an end by the resignation. And the players, the women's players involved in all of this have been talking about real structural and institutional change. That is what they want to see. The removal of one individual is not going to do that. And really, the talk of the reference to the, to the World Cup absolutely plays that out, doesn't it? You know, there are much bigger footballing structures uh, and, and politics at play. An interesting one to watch from this point is whether the resignation of Rubiales on top of the sacking of coach Jorge Vilda will be enough to encourage the Spanish women's team to play. They are due to be representing their country uh, in a Nations League encounter on September the 22nd against Sweden. They, of course, up to this point have refused to do that with the structures in place. Uh, From what we're hearing from the Federation, negotiations and discussions are very much ongoing. Yes, politics and priorities, Amanda. Fingers crossed we see them on the, what was it, September 22nd, back in action. Yep, Amanda Davis there in London. Thank you. Okay, straight ahead. The scale of devastation in Morocco is clear and so is the need for support. We'll speak to a humanitarian aid organization delivering essential aid after this. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back to First Move. Morocco's government and volunteers are handing out desperately needed supplies after Friday's deadly earthquake. The race to deliver aid is especially critical to people living in remote villages, as Sam was saying earlier on the show. Officials say destroyed roads into those hard-hit regions are rendering their efforts to get aid to people more difficult. International aid coming in with Morocco accepting support from UK, Spain, the UAE and Qatar. And joining us now is Ethan Schwartz, Communications Director for the humanitarian aid organisation ISRA Aid. His team is now in Marrakesh. Ethan, thank you so much for your time. I know you're incredibly busy. I believe you arrived there Sunday afternoon. Just give us a sense of what you've seen already and, and what your priorities are. Sure, sure. And thank you for having me and, and, and for sharing this. Um, 
So you're right. We arrived yesterday afternoon um, into Marrakesh. In the in the sort of less than a day that we've been here, even inside the city in some of the older areas, you can see destruction. You can see people sleeping out on the streets. Um, but the the biggest needs and the biggest humanitarian crisis right now is outside the city, in the mountain areas, and and that's where we're trying to deliver aid. So Israel Aid is a a global non-governmental organization. We respond to emergencies as quickly as we can, and then we stay long term, uh, sort of to work together with local communities. So that's what we're doing here. I mean, part of the challenge when you're talking about those outside of the city and up into the mountains is you're battling a couple of things, the the elements, the fact that it's so hot out there, but also the terrain and then the, the blockage of certain roads. Have you worked out a way actually to get those supplies to the people? How easy is it even to achieve that at this stage? So it, it, you're right that it's challenging and we're, we're basically having to take it kind of case by case, place by place. Um, so as soon as I get off this call, we're actually getting in the car and driving up to a few mountain villages in the Al Hoz region, which is just outside the city. Um, and and a lot of some roads are possible, some roads aren't. We're sort of seeing as as it comes. And the main thing that we're doing is working together with local community organizations. So everything we do is being led by community groups, volunteer organizations, charities that are local to Morocco and to the region. So we're following their lead and, and they're taking us where the needs are greatest. Um, we think that's the best way. So it's it's actually them that, that called you in, that called Israel in. And so I guess you're coordinating with them in terms of how you can help to provide essentials, uh, shelter, yeah, exactly. water. Exactly. So and, and this is something that Israel does in every uh, emergency response we do, whether it's an earthquake or a hurricane or refugee crisis we work with local organizations we're always invited in brought in by local community groups because we think it's really crucial for humanitarian aid and solutions to be driven by the community and that way they can kind of build a stronger more resilient future after crisis so we're working together to deliver blankets tents uh, water filters that can serve households uh, hygiene items toothpaste soap uh, sanitary pads, all the essentials that you need, uh, not just to survive, but to survive with dignity after a crisis. What about medicines, Ethan, as well, for people that perhaps uh, need those and have, have lost those too? Are you part of providing access to those or at least getting those to, to people as well? It's always the the shelter, the, the water, the basic things first, and then then you start to worry about sort of health care too. No, absolutely. And, and healthcare is something that, that uh, a number of partner organizations here are working on. Um, and we're assessing the situation in terms of healthcare and seeing whether it's something we can be involved in or not. It's something that we do in a lot of different countries around the world. And, and one of our main areas of expertise is, is healthcare and medication, and especially kind of the medical logistics and public health of getting medication to crisis affected communities. Um, so it's it's definitely a challenge, and it's also something that we're kind of letting local communities lead from the front in terms of what are the needs, what can we do, what can other partner organizations do, um, and and how do we kind of bring the most aid to the people in the in the most need. Um, Ethan, I know it's difficult to assess, and you you've been there less than a day so far. But are you short of anything? If people are watching and perhaps can provide 
as you said, blankets, essentials. Um, is there anything people can do to help? Sure. So, so the most important thing actually is uh, is to support organisations that are working on the ground locally, um, whoever they are, as long as they're working on the ground locally. Because the best way to to bring aid is actually to buy as much aid in the country as possible. That way, we're supporting the local economy, supporting affected communities, not shipping things around the world, which is logistically challenging and and obviously has more carbon emissions. But actually, trying to buy stuff in Morocco to bring to Moroccans. Um, so the best thing to do is to try and uh, find any organization working locally on the ground to support. You can always go to Israel.org if you want to find out more about us. Um, and, and we welcome all donations and, and, and all partnerships that, that anyone wants to bring. Yeah, it's such a great reminder. Support the local communities and the local businesses in this situation um, as best we can at the same time. Ethan, how long do you plan to be there? Do you have any sense of that at this moment? Sure. So, so something we, we, we never set a time limit as soon as we enter a country um, after a crisis. And so we sometimes we end up staying in, in countries for up to 10 years after an emergency to work long-term with communities. And sometimes we we work for three months and, and at the end of three months, we say, okay, we, we, we're leaving communities that are in a stronger, better place. Um, so at the moment, we're not sure. Um, we'll definitely be here for the next uh, while, I would I would expect the next few months, um, but, but I couldn't put any kind of time limit at this point. Um, so we'll see. Ethan, thank you so much for joining us. I know you're incredibly busy. Um, Huge thanks to you and the team too. You're certainly heroes going in there to help at this moment. Ethan Schwartz there, Communications Director for Israel Aid. Good to have you with us. Stay safe, please. Now for more information about how you can help victims of the Morocco earthquake, go to cnn.com slash impact. All the information that you need is there. More First Move after the break. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stock markets are open for business this Monday. Shares of Qualcomm jumping after the firm announced it will supply Apple with 5G modems for iPhones until 2026. And Tesla driving higher, too, after Morgan Stanley upgraded the stock. And Hostess, the maker of Twinkies, is soaring as it's being bought by J.M. Sucker in a $5.6 billion deal. I can't believe I live in America and I still haven't tried a Twinkie. In the meantime, across the Atlantic, European stocks are mostly higher as investors await the central bank's rate decision later this week. Meanwhile, the EU has cut its growth forecast for this year in the eurozone. It's blaming weak domestic demand, China's slowing economy, as well as the impact of climate change. Okay, to Ukraine now. President Vladimir Putin's United Russia Party is claiming a landslide victory in regional elections taking place over the weekend in Russia and parts of occupied Ukraine. The international community responding with condemnation, the EU calling it illegal, the U.S. Secretary of State calling the voting a blatant disregard for U.N. Charter principles. Quote, Melissa Bell joins us now from Zaporizhia, Ukraine. The problem for Ukrainians that might not have wanted to vote in these elections, not voting exposes them to. 
These have been decried by uh, Ukrainian officials and all of their allies, uh, as you mentioned, Julia, as a sham from the get-go held over a couple of days. It finished the voting uh, yesterday. And uh, little surprise, uh, what we're seeing across the rest of the Russian Federation, because these were municipal and regional elections that were held across the Russian territory, is uh, Vladimir Putin's party uh, leading. And in the case of the occupied territories, uh, those candidates uh, handpicked by the Kremlin uh, leading very much too. And there was little suggestion that it was going to be anything else. What we'd heard initially from parts uh, of uh, the occupied regions, uh, Julia, was that there were some fairly heavy-handed tactics. We'd heard that uh, people were going door-to-door to get people to vote. And then we also heard from other people saying, look, we've seen very little uh, sign of that. Essentially, we don't believe that this is anything other than a foregone conclusion. So uh, there have been reports of some attempts at sabotage in these occupied regions. And I think it's important to remember that Beyond what the European Union has said, Joseph Borrell, you mentioned there a moment ago, his condemnation, which speaks specifically to the context in which these elections happen, uh, the, the lack of transparency, uh, opposition candidates, freedom, uh, anything that you would need to have a legitimate election held, uh, this is also happening. And I think it's important in the context of forcible deportations, uh, sis, uh, allegations of systematic uh, torture uh, on uh, the Russian-held side of the Ukrainian line. And I think it's important also also to remember, Julia, that not a single one of these four regions, if you lead aside Crimea for a moment, uh, Luhansk, Donetsk, Zaporizhia uh, and Kherson, not a single one of them is entirely held by Russian forces, uh, which adds another degree of illegitimacy to these elections being held. But again, uh, what we understand is that for the Ukrainians who've been urged not to vote uh, in these elections from the other side of the line by Kiev, I think there's very little doubt about what, what is uh, actually going on here. As to the presidential elections that are due to be held in Russia, next year, Julia. We have been hearing today from the uh, Kremlin spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, who said that whilst uh, Vladimir Putin himself has not confirmed his candidacy for certain, it's clear that there will be no one else who will be in a position to compete. And I think that gives you a flavor of what's to come when it comes to those presidential elections due next March, Julia. Yes, said with a straight face. Melissa Bell, thank you for joining us there from Ukraine. Now to diplomatic tensions between the UK and China. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak says he met with Chinese Premier Li Chang at the G20 summit and told him he is very concerned about potential Chinese efforts to interfere in Britain's democracy. The conversation came after two men in the UK were arrested under the UK's Official Secrets Act. One of the men works as a researcher in Parliament and has reportedly been accused of spying for Beijing. In a statement released by his attorney, the researcher said he is, quote, completely innocent. More first move after this. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy the gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back to First Move and to Quiz Time. What do the following have in common? A wind turbine, an MRI machine, a stereo speaker, and a washing machine? Well, the answer is they all rely on magnets to work. But there's a problem. 
the rare earths that make up magnets will come under increasing demand as the world's population grows. According to our next guest, demand is expected to outplace supply by 2025. And the United States is heavily dependent on China for production. And that causes volatility in pricing and, of course, concerns about the supply chain. Plus, traditional mining methods aren't so good for the environment, too. But one company has found a way to recycle used magnets, stripping them out of discarded products, melting them down and remanufacturing them. Texas-based Novian says less than 1% of rare earth magnets are recovered and recycled, but it's aiming to tap into a 600,000-ton supply. To tell us more, Scott Dunn is the CEO of Novion Magnetics, and he joins us now. Scott, great to have you on the show. I think what's clear is that we're all surrounded by these rare earth magnets, but probably for most of us, we don't actually understand it. What is a rare earth magnet, first and foremost? Well, Julia, thanks for thanks for having us, and it's a pleasure to join. Um, we like to usually try to create some sort of uh, direct connection between folks and, and magnets in their lives. They're, magnets are everywhere. They're, they're all around us all the time, um, from your home to your car to your workplace to the factories and industrial processes that make our standard of living possible. So magnets are really how we use energy. Um, magnets power electric motors. Uh, generators, uh, and other of the most energy efficient technology in the world today. You want to think of magnets in terms of how uh, electrical energy actually becomes uh, mechanical motion or otherwise how we harness mechanical motion and it becomes electrical energy. So um, this is really how we use energy. I like to think of magnets as uh, a really, really important piece of the energy tripod, so to speak. You have uh, energy generation and transmission you have energy and energy storage, so think batteries. And then think about magnets as important as batteries as playing the uh, energy conversion role in our lives and, and in society. Um, and, and what's really unique about, about this and, and kind of the inflection point that we sit at today is that magnets are, uh, after many decades, now playing an even more increasingly important role in uh, electric vehicle technology, clean energy technology. And so magnets are, are, are playing even an, an even more important role really in the future and, and in our society, and especially as we move towards uh, energy transition and, and what I'll call kind of clean, low carbon, uh, high tech uh, future technology. So um, that's, that's really what magnets do in our society and, and really how important they are to our way of life. And that's the key. I think we're suddenly focused on this far more than we have been in the past because of the renewable energy transition. And you mentioned it, the use of these magnets in electric vehicles. If we're going to scale that up, we've got to have access to the supply chain that gets us these rare earth minerals. And here is the challenge. The world's greatest source of rare earth minerals is China. And the other challenge here is, I believe, less than 1% of the magnets that we use today are recycled. Why? Because this is where you saw the opportunity. Yeah, you're exactly right. Um, you know, t- today, uh, over 50% of the electricity we consume is already passing through an electric motor and, and being converted into the energy that we use in, in, in our different ways of life and, our, again, in our homes and in our factories. Um, so as we look out into the future and as we become uh, basically to as we come to rely more on these materials uh, that play an increasingly important role in that future, uh, we run into this issue as you described. Um, 
the way that we can possibly sort of recapture, redefine the supply chain, the way in which we can do that uh, in order to reduce environmental impact is all very, very important to an overall uh, more, more, more sustainable outcome. Um, now, from a recycling standpoint, that's what's really unique about our business uh, here at Novion Magnetics. Um, we, in fact, are going into magnet manufacturing in a way that directly captures and employs these recycled resources right into our manufacturing route or our manufacturing process. It's what's very unique about our technology. Um, to, to, to your comments earlier, the fact that so many of these materials are essentially lost to uh, scrap or melt or, or, or what have you is, is borderline unacceptable if you kind of consider the stakes. And so what we've done is really to focus on how much of our production can we support directly from recycled material, uh, which is otherwise not really recycled, create that marketplace, create that circular economy where opportunity exists, and then, and then use that as much as we can to, in fact, achieve those other key kind of goals and objectives, you know, redefine the supply chain, uh, remove supply chain risk, but also remove and reduce the environmental impact and, and the burden associated with the manufacturing chain for these materials. And um, we've so far been reasonably successful at doing that uh, at a certain scale, but the next several years of our, of our business's life is really focused on how much can we scale that and, and bring that solution as much as we yeah. can to bear on this market and on this problem. Yeah, I mean, I'd call it completely unacceptable. I'll go that far to say that we're that we're not recycling them. I guess um, the fear perhaps would be the potency of the magnet. But what you're saying is you can be 90 percent more energy efficient than traditional manufacturing and actually produce a stronger and a more durable magnet, which I think is key. Um, and maybe you can tell me how you how you're achieving that or it might be too complicated. But I think what you said about oh. supply, I think what you said about supply actually overrides that. Because this is the important thing. It's got to be scalable or it's no use to us. And I mean, we've already got the U.S. government saying due to strategic um, security concerns that, that uh, U.S. defense contractors, I believe, actually can't use um, China produced magnets. So that obviously is great for you guys. But if you can't scale or provide that until you've got this supply chain shored up, that sounds like a problem to me. Yeah, that's that's correct, and that is the challenge. I mean, we, we are kind of pioneering that, but um, you know, in a in a in a given some of the geopolitical tension and and given a little bit of what I'll call the post-COVID world and the way that we've observed supply chain risk, beginning with semiconductor on down, um, it's it's critical that we do have a secure supply chain for these materials. Um, what's unique about our business is, in a lot of ways the only way that you can recycle elements are to get back to the elements. You have to go through typically uh, a long chain of, of chemical and energy intensive process. Um, you have to sort of, you know, create the elements all over again before you can move into finished products, which is what the market needs, which is what the customer needs. Um, in, in our case, we are, we are taking these recycled materials and we're moving those directly into a manufacturing process and, you know, targeting, you know, what I'll call the OEM requirement or the OEM spec, you know, uh, direct to OEM, direct to the automotive, direct to the wind turbine manufacturer, direct to the electric motor manufacturer and, and, and providing that finished product to them, which is many, many, many steps and series of value chain. Um, and as long as we can, as long as we can do that effectively, while in parallel as we grow, also develop the supply chain for recycled material, we believe we should be able to significantly offset 
what I'll call traditional demand for primary resources in the case of rare earths. And that should help us to alleviate what I'll call supply chain risk, but 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 also foreign dependency. And, and I think that that matters more and more across the globe, um, especially in this uh, post-COVID world, if you will. Yeah, and I have about a minute left, but I believe the U.S. government or the Department of Defense has invested $35 million in, in helping you scale this. To your point, it's about knowing where the products are going and ensuring that part of the supply chain, but also a healthy supply of EVs and scooters and things to take these rare earth magnets from. Um, what next, Scott? And you have half a minute to describe it. <laughs> no, it's a, it's, uh, that's a great prompt because um, we, we, we do want to understand this issue is beyond military um, or defense. This is a very significant, broad commercial issue. Um, our high-tech, low-carbon future is essentially uh, pinned on the availability of rare earth resources and, and specifically rare earth magnets. Um, and so, uh, I guess in closing, uh, our, our business is here to essentially um, – you know, deliver as much as we can as far as the solution goes um, in order that the supply chain risk associated with these materials is is, is, is reduced, that, that risk is mitigated, and that the supply that we offer to our customers is as sustainable as possible. And I think if we can deliver on those two uh, angles, if you will, um, we will have significant impact on what the next 10, 15, 20 years look like uh, globally as it relates to these materials and really the role that they play in our lives and the need for them. Yeah, this is so much bigger than defense. This is about society in general and a renewable energy future, an yes, achievable ma'am. one, quite frankly. Yeah, Scott, great to chat to you. Thank you. Scott Dunn, the CEO of Novian Magnetics. Uh, we'll speak again Thank soon. You, Thank you. Okay, still to come. As people in Mexico look ahead to presidential elections, women are set to smash the country's political glass ceiling. We like the sound of that. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. And of course, to a somber anniversary here in the United States. You're about to see live pictures of Ground Zero in New York as Americans pause to remember the deadly attacks on September the 11th, 22 years ago today. As we speak, the names of those who were lost on that day are being read and another memorial service taking place now at the Pentagon as well. And later on this afternoon, First Lady Jill Biden will lay a wreath at the National Line 11 Memorial there. Now, something you don't hear every day. Mexico guaranteed a female president as the nation's next leader as both leading political parties unveil their candidates. Rafael Romo has more. A ceremonial passing of the baton to the woman named by the government party the day before as the presidential candidate. Constitutionally barred from running for re-election, Mexican President Andrés Manuel López Obrador wanted to show in a very public way that Claudia Sheinbaum, a 61-year-old former Mexico City mayor, has his blessing. In thanking Obrador for his support, Sheinbaum hit all the right notes by promising to continue the course of what she called the transformation initiated by the president. This now means that when they go to the polls next June, Mexicans, for the first time in the country's history, will likely choose between two women when voting for president. Es un circo. Xochitl Galvez, the candidate from the main opposition coalition, described the passing of the baton ceremony as a circus, 
The 60-year-old senator described the ceremony as an act of authoritarianism of the Mexico we want to leave behind from a weekend president who urgently needs to inherit his mandate due to lack of results. This is not the first time Mexico has seen a woman running for the presidency. In fact, before Sheinbaum and Galvez, there have been six other female presidential candidates. But with the two major political coalitions naming women as their candidates, this is the first time it's practically a given that starting in December 2024, Mexico, a country previously known for machismo, will be ruled by a woman. Vamos a ganar el 2024. Sheinbaum, an environmental scientist with a doctorate in energy engineering and a protege of López Obrador, would be the first president with Jewish heritage if she wins. Xochitl Galvez, the daughter of an indigenous father and a mixed-race mother, served as the top official for indigenous affairs under President Vicente Fox and later as senator. Unfiltered and irreverent, she described herself in an interview with CNN in Español as an all-terrain, four-by-four kind of woman. Early in the summer, President Andrés Manuel López Obrador made her a target of constant verbal attacks that backfired, making the candidate from a tiny town in central Mexico who rose to become a businesswoman but still rides a bicycle even more popular. But Claudia Sheinbaum will be a formidable opponent to beat, not only because she has the full support of the governing party, but also because as mayor of Mexico's most important city for the last five years, until her resignation in June to run for the presidency, she has constantly been in the spotlight. Rafael Romo, CNN Atlanta. And that just about wraps up the show. Connect the World is up next. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.